Hi there. I'm so excited to welcome you to the Arthritis Life Podcast, where we share arthritis life stories and tips for thriving with autoimmune arthritis. My name is Cheryl Crow, and I am passionate about helping people navigate real life with arthritis beyond joint pain. I've been living with rheumatoid arthritis for 20 years, and I'm also a mom, occupational therapist, video creator, support group leader, and I created the Room to Thrive self-management program. I am so excited to help you live a more empowered life with arthritis. We're going to cover everything from kitchen life hacks to navigating the healthcare system to coping with friends who just don't get it. Seriously, no topic is going to be off limits on this podcast. My interviewees and I share our honest stories of how chronic illness affects our lives. This includes discussions about mental health, sex, shame, pregnancy, body image, advocacy, self-acceptance, and so much more. You'll hear stories from all ends of the spectrum, from a person who's living in Medicaid remission from psoriatic arthritis to somebody living with severe mobility restrictions and severe pain from rheumatoid arthritis. You'll hear how people manage their conditions in different ways, like medications, mindfulness, movement, social support, work accommodations, and so much more. You'll also hear from rheumatology experts who just get it. We'll dive deep into the science behind chronic pain and what's the latest evidence for lifestyle changes that can help you thrive with arthritis, including exercise, sleep, nutrition, stress reduction, and more. This is your chance to sit down and chat with a friend who's been there. Ready to figure out how to manage your arthritis life? Let's get started. I am so excited today to have Dr. Yvonne Codd on the podcast to talk about occupational therapy and parenting and inflammatory arthritis. Welcome. Thank you you so much. Oh, no problem. Thank you. Can you just let us know a little bit about you, like where you live and what your relationship is to arthritis? Absolutely. So Cheryl, I'm joining today from Ireland. I live in County Kildare in Ireland and I currently work across two roles here as an occupational therapist, one in our public health care service um, working as a clinical occupational therapist and then I also work as an OT researcher in the School of Medicine in Trinity College in Dublin. That's yeah and I can't wait to delve more into your research but first I would love to know Why did you become an occupational therapist and how did you end up specializing in rheumatology? Yeah, I I suppose I was really interested in healthcare. That's where I was thinking when I was looking at career choices. And I suppose the life role engagement piece of OT just really captured my interest. I suppose I really like the fact that we're so led by the clients that we have the privilege to work with and what their priorities were. So I knew I would be going into a profession where every person I met would have a different set of priorities and a different set of of, um, focus for their sessions. So I knew every day would be different. And that's that was why OT um, hooked me in the first place. And then from a rheumatology point of view, when I was studying and in my fourth year and my undergrad, I did a rheumatology placement, a 10 week student placement. And, and that was it. it. It wasn't planned. I didn't know I'd love it, but I absolutely did. And I've ended up working most of my career um, within the area of rheumatology ever since. That's incredible. I mean, it's such a, it's, it's a great, like, I don't know what to say, happenstance or that you kind of fell into it um, yeah. through, through your internship. I really did. I didn't, it wasn't something I thought, oh, this is the clinical area for me. But when I got there, 
it's the variety it's the variety that comes with it that just kept it so interesting and I suppose the other thing that happened at that time which was back in the early 2000s was that the whole biologics were coming onto the radar and I suppose the whole landscape of rheumatology at that time was so exciting because here were these new drugs that were treating these conditions in a totally different way and therefore the potential of them and therefore the potential for role of OT it was just a really exciting time and I say I got hooked and uh, ended up spending most of my, my working career so far working in this area. That's so, that's so wonderful. And, you know, I didn't even prepare you for this question. So, but I'm, if it would be helpful, I think for the audience to hear, like, what are some common, um, you know, goals of occupational therapy in, in, let's say, you know, people um, between their thirties and forties who have, you know, rheumatoid arthritis or similar condition, like, what are some of the things that you specifically helped your you know, clients do or achieve? I think that'd be helpful for the audience to know. Yeah, I suppose if you think about that age profile, that kind of 30 to 40 age profile, it's it's really often a time when people are kind of settling down into adult life properly. <laughs> and so they're really thinking about their career and their job that they do and that they want to do and their kind of career future and, and how they see their work and they're also looking at starting a family and, and thinking about family planning or having children so there are really big elements of occupational therapy for that client group how in rheumatoid arthritis and in any of the arthritis conditions how maybe those roles are impacted because of the diagnosis and what kind of management and strategies need to be there to guide people to continue to retain and enjoy those roles um, as they go on through their life course. Yeah that that's that's beautifully said and actually I'm going to go back even a step further and say do you have a favorite way to define occupational therapy or, you know, we always talk, at least in the US, we talk about an elevator speech, like a, a quick yeah. 60 second or less description. How do you like to explain what is occupational therapy? Yeah, I suppose I would describe occupational therapists as somebody who understands the visible and invisible impacts of an illness or an injury on a person and on the things that they need to do and want to do in their lives. So occupational therapy is about managing or addressing or treating those visible and invisible impacts so the person can engage in those meaningful life roles of work, parenting, relationships, social and leisure roles but it's very person-led depending on where that person is in their, in their life and in their priorities at that time. I love that. And that's exactly something that I liked about the field as well, is that it's so individualized because, you know, if you might have five patients with rheumatoid arthritis who have the same le- reported levels of pain or the same joint deformities, but they're all doing such different things in their life and their goals and values are different, right? A day in the life looks totally different to each person. So you're individualizing your treatment. You're not just saying, oh, here's the handout of, you know, just the five things you need to do. Although, the, but also the, the downside of that, it's a, it's a lot of ambiguity. Do you find it stressful yeah. at all? Yeah. Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> but, but I, I think you're right. I, I do think where OTs come, where OTs are gold and, and I am an OT and I'm a proud OT, but I think what we're so good at is looking at, yes, those symptoms, but how they impact on function. And therefore, if you're treating pain, it's pain 
in what task or pain to be able to do what task. And if it's fatigue, it's fatigue in what task or what role and how to manage the fatigue to be able to enjoy better. So that's the piece that I love because I think exactly as you said, three, four or five people in a row with maybe the same symptoms, but how the symptoms impact on them individually and that functional everyday life, that's the bit that's different. And that's the bit that really brings out the problem solver um, in me as an OT to think, okay, what's what will solve this problem? But what will solve it in a way that's actually acceptable to this person as well? And and also, are they ready to hear this advice? You know, because I think that kind of timing piece around some of the support that we give, you might have the most perfect solution, but it's not going to be acceptable to that person. And therefore, it's not the right advice at the right time. And, and I think we, we try and we should always be, be sensitive to that because that's going to have such a big impact on whether something is successful or not and it's also going to have an impact on whether that person will come back to you again if they have a problem because if they feel you get them and you get what, what their values are and what's a no-go or a perfect fit if they run into an, the sand with a different difficulty they'll say I want to talk to the occupational therapist about this now because she or he will know how to, to, to meet my needs in this way. And I, I like that. I like the challenge of that. Yeah, it's so true. I think there's a lot of paradoxes in rheumatology, just in general. Like if you're really fatigued, it's actually helpful to exercise. You're like, what? That doesn't make sense. I'm tired. Shouldn't I rest? You know, things like that. And another other paradox is like, acceptance for me, you know, acceptance and commitment therapy and, mm. and leaning into acceptance has been the key for me to improve my quality of life. But you're and in general, we say, you know, earlier interventions are better, but the early stage when you're just diagnosed is not the stage when most people are ready to accept fully. I agree. I, I do agree. I also think early access to treatment is important. So at least you can hear a little bit about what's available and what you can be thinking about. But I absolutely agree with you that flexible approach to services is so key because every person has to go on their own journey. And it's it's that right time to hear information is, is really going to decide how effective it is. So I think I would very much sing early access to intervention because so often people don't even know what's out there and then they can end up feeling really isolated because they don't know what supports they don't know that parenting or work or or driving might even be something to discuss with a healthcare provider so I think having that on the radar that this is actually a very valid place to discuss this and then come back when it's the right time um, is really important as well so that people get the value out of service and, and get the help they need when they need it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I definitely think that we seem to be underutilized, at least in the United States, the vast majority of people I talk to um, who've had significant limitations in their ability to function in daily life, perform life roles like parenting, um, and work there have never heard of occupational therapy, never been referred to it. And that's really on the providers. We really have to utilize the, the health providers need to utilize the multidisciplinary team. That's really true. And that's something I did a study on it um, back in 2018, more related to employment. And what I actually did was I was asking the rheumatology team 
do you think work and employment sits under the scope of rheumatology? And they all said yes. So I did a survey and hundreds of participants, and they all said, absolutely, yes, this is part of my role. And I said, what guides you to ask an employee, a client about their work and, and how they're doing? And the fundamental, by far, by far biggest reason that healthcare providers asked about work was when the client themselves brought it up. So healthcare providers know that employment is part of the scope of rheumatology. They also actually, I should say, said it was the role of OT to address it because it would very much be our practice in Ireland. But the 92% or something said, I rely on the client to bring it up. So it's, and that's going to be the, the decider to whether a work referral is made. And where that's really interesting is if you ask a client who's going in for a medical appointment and they have 15 minutes, work is way down the list of questions when they're thinking about medication and side effects and, and symptoms and, and all those other things, because they're going to be top of the list. So a lot of clients didn't realize this is the place I should be asking. And if I do ask, I'll get the help I need. So that disconnect is a real problem here, certainly, and something that I suppose I'm trying to um, tackle on two approaches. One, one brainwashing the, the rheumatology team. You need to ask about work and you need to ask about work at every appointment. And I think that's the same for parenting, which is what we're more um, talking about today. You need to ask about roles. How are you getting on? How are you managing? And don't just ask the first time you meet the person. Ask them every time they come back for an appointment. And in this other side, I'm trying to tackle it by saying to clients and service users and people with arthritis, life roles how you're managing work, how you're managing home, how you're managing parenting relationships. That's part of you learning to live well and learning to cope and, and adjust and, and enjoy a quality of life. So ask for help and, and look for support and at least know that it's it's the right place to ask and, and see what help you can get or what signposting you can get from that. Absolutely. And I think, I think another disconnect comes where, you know, people with... Um, these kind of chronic conditions, we sometimes end up feeling like we have to just do it all ourselves or we just have to suffer, you know? And so sometimes I think when people maybe have that, maybe they're on minute 14 of their 15 minute visit and they've really quickly tried to bring it up like, Hey, I'm having a hard time with work and I'm really stressed out about it. And I'm frustrated and I'm, I'm sad and I'm struggling emotionally. And then the provide, the doctor might pick up on the fact that, okay, this is person's having difficulty coping and let's refer them to psychology for coping. And I'm the number one fan of going to therapy and going to, you know, getting help with a psychologist mm -hmm. and a psychiatrist. I've gone to both, love them both, um, fiercely, you know, but it's like, you're skipping over this step of helping people not just say, okay, this is what it is. And I have to cope with it, but can we problem solve a day in your life and go through, you know, what does it look like when you wake up? What does it look like when you get your child ready for school? What is it, you know, and that's our job as occupational therapists is I just describe us as a life skills specialist, you know, specializing and helping you function in your daily life. So a little soapbox. <laughs> and I think, it, yeah, no, no, I, I'm totally with you. And I think it's also, it's not just what are you doing and how are you doing it? They're really important, but what's changed? Because I think that kind of reflective piece tells you how you're doing, because because sometimes we're so busy in the moment that we don't realize actually things are slipping or I'm actually feeling overwhelmed or things are hard and they're really important pieces. So I would always say to to, to clients, I would say, how are you managing? 
specifically and asking really specific questions. How are you managing at home? How are you managing the day to day things with your family? How is work going? What's what's happening from a social point of view or a hobby interest? point? Because when you ask really explicit questions, then you give the person a chance to ask to reflect and ask back and then then you get the true story and I think the other thing that um, I, I'm always encouraging clients to do is when they do go for their medical points or go for all of their appointments prepare for them and I think I've, I, I've seen one of your um, TikToks about this too have it have take a bit of space take a bit of time to do that how's it going and thinking and maybe write a list because I do think when when clients go into an appointment and they have that piece of paper in their hand it, it just gives an element of space because the healthcare provider sees the paper, they know their questions and they're more likely to give time and work through the list. And that also helps anxiety and you feel like you're, you're leading the appointment. And I think that those kinds of things have a really big impact, just practical, tangible things that help you have a good sense of where you're at and what help you might need. And then the kind of confidence to ask and, and to ask those kind of participation based questions as well. I love that. I love the, yeah, the, I can just hear the occupational therapy <laughs> throughout what you're saying, you know, participation based questions, meaning, yeah, what when we say participation means like the actual doing of, of your life, you know, and I remember one of my professors at Samuel Merritt used to say, you know, the OT isn't just about talking about it. It's about the actual doing, you know, I always try to remember that, yeah. but yeah, I, I want to make sure we, talk about the parenting specifically, because yeah, you have done some really fascinating, I, I think it would be called qualitative research, right? On the ways that inflammatory forms of arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis, affect people's ability to perform life roles like parenting. <laughs> and also um, I, I'm laughing at myself because I used to go to speech therapy because I couldn't say R. And so sometimes when I say a word like roles, I couldn't say R or L, I have to like focus for a second, like roles. <laughs> but um, yeah, what are, it's not about me. This is about the research. So what are some of, I would just love to hear more about like how, first of all, like how did you perform the research? Like what did that look like? And then what were some of the themes? I have just lost you for a second. Oh, oh, sorry. I hear you. Yeah, and I'm just really curious to learn more about your research on the way that um, inflammatory forms of arthritis like rheumatoid or psoriatic affect people's life roles like parenting. So can you summarize some of the themes that you discovered through your research and maybe actually start with how, how did you even, how do you start with researching this? Like, did you talk to people or how did the research, uh, how would you say that? What's the research methods? <laughs> yeah. So, so I was really interested in parenting because I was conscious that it's an area that actually hasn't had a lot of attention in the literature. And what has been looked at is mainly um, parents with arthritis who have established arthritis so arthritis, inflammatory arthritis over many years and what was out there already was saying that parents who had established arthritis had physical difficulty managing some of the jobs of parenting which makes sense um, but there was really very little out there for those parents who were in the early stage of their diagnosis so I undertook qualitative research I used a qualitative descriptive approach and I interviewed 24 parents who had a diagnosis of early inflammatory arthritis so in their first two years of diagnosis 
and the majority of the participants were female and all of them were par were parents first and later went on to have a diagnosis of inflammatory arthritis, either rheumatoid, as you said, psoriatic or undifferentiated inflammatory arthritis. And what I found that I thought was so interesting was that in this study, um, so I interviewed them, I should have said that, they all, um, each participant had an individual in interview with me and this was the topic people really wanted to talk about. So the average interview duration was about 55 minutes and some people spoke for maybe an hour and 25. And what the findings, the kind of big findings that came out of it were was that parenting with early inflammatory arthritis results is quite difficult, very challenging because of the physical restrictions associated with early disease and also the psychosocial restrictions with early disease. And that those restrictions had a big impact on altered parenting capacity. So not just the ability to physically do the job, but also the emotional capacity that was needed to parent. And this was something that these parents really felt very, very strongly. And they spoke very much about how because of that altered capacity, their relationships with their children had often changed. And this was because maybe for some of the participants, they couldn't do the tasks that they always did for their children and they had to delegate those roles. So some people spoke about having to delegate to their partner or to their mum or to their friend and needing other people to help to do the job. Some people needed older children to help to do the parenting tasks of smaller children. And this was huge for, for all of these participants because they really saw, because the relationship, that dynamic change, and they talked about it like a forced role switch, they didn't choose this, it was put upon them, they didn't want it. That was had a massive impact on these. And so for these participants with inflamm early inflammatory arthritis, their role identity as a parent was really challenged because of their diagnosis. And that was quite different from those with established arthritis who didn't see that their parenting role was any different. But for those with early inflammatory arthritis, they really kind of questioned, well, if I can't do these care and nurture roles, if I can't, if I'm struggling with transporting a child in and out of a car seat and getting them to school or swimming after school, am I really a parent? And this was something that caused mm. massive hurt and guilt and, and worry. And that was something that I thought was really important for us to know as healthcare providers. And also even in the early stage of this diagnosis, these parents were worried about the future and they were looking to the future and the type of parent they might be or be able to be and if they could be a parent. And I thought that was really because particularly the help thing, I know we've spoken about it before, is help a good thing or a bad thing? Because um, help can be great, but help is only great if you want it. <laughs> and and if, it's a, if it's a help to you, um, for, for the participants in our study, they felt it was put upon them and they had lost choice in it. And that was the piece that was so hurtful. And I think for healthcare providers, you know, we need to really think about this when we are working with clients. We're, we're quite good at picking up on the challenges, those physical and emotional or those visible and invisible challenges, as I like to think of them. But sometimes we can hear a person has a lot of support and think, great, fantastic. That's great that they have a really supportive partner. That's great that they have neighbors who can help. Fantastic. But if that help isn't wanted, then there's an awful lot of an emotional consequence that goes with that. And I think we need to be 
sensitive to that and, and, and respectful of that when we're just trying to support a person to, to parent as they wish and to look at some of the problems that go, solving that goes with that. Yeah, I mean, I, I have so many thoughts about what you just said from my own experience. I mean, I had had rheumatoid arthritis for 12, no, 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 11 years, actually 10 years when I got pregnant and then um, 11 years when I gave birth. And so for me, I did, well, you can think that you are prepared, but uh, you, yeah. you're never really prepared, right? For having a child. Uh, most parents will tell you that regardless of chronic illness. But I think the, one of the first things I thought of when you were talking about this is that like, there's an old quote I really like. It's like, happiness is reality minus expectations. Meaning like mm -hmm. if you have really high expectations and then reality doesn't match those, the more the more disproportionately high your expectations are to reality, the less happy you are. And I think, so if you like, for me, I knew I had rheumatoid arthritis and that that was going to pose likely a barrier that there would maybe probably be a postpartum flare up. So my expectations were adjusted accordingly, but still, you know, I'm very stubborn. I think a lot of people maybe hopefully are, or can relate to that. Maybe if not, that's fine too, but it's like, yeah, I know logically that like, I'm going to have to ask for help, but emotionally it's hard. It's very hard. And, and it's a constant grieving process to say like, this is what, you know, I thought my life was going to be this way, uh, what, you know, one way when I was 20 and got diagnosed. And now I, my life is different because of this diagnosis. And I don't, and if I have to, it, now we're talking about help. If I have to ask for help, that's just a reminder to me of that. I'm not able to do the things that I thought I'd be able to do. And I don't want to accept that, you know? So it's really a continuous grieving process. I think to say like, you know, I, I mean, and it's such an emotional thing to say, like, I don't even want I can't even pick up my own child. Like it hurts me to hold my baby. Like how that's such a complex emotional experience, but at least for me, I knew the risks I was taking because I knew I had rheumatoid arthritis. I do think it's different psychologically. I know you found this in the research. It's different if you didn't even think of this as a possibility, which most people don't. No one ever thinks that they're going to get, you know, a chronic illness. Mm -hmm. So um, unless they have a family history potentially, but, you know, it's like, I thought that I was making an informed decision to have a child and that under like assuming that I'd be able to do all these tasks, like, you know, lifting them in and out of the car and everything. And then now you're, you have to totally, it's like a whiplash, like, wait a minute, I can't do this the way I planned. And that's really scary. So I don't know if there's anything you want to respond in that. Yeah. Well, I think, you see, I think what I, I think what's really important is that like, I'm a parent to, I think all parents need help. <laughs> And I think it's really normal. And I think it's really normal for parents to share tasks and delegate. And even if it's a case of you drop him to hurling and I'll start the dinner and, you know, like that kind of trade off sometimes that we do or and, and to, to carpool with other with other parents, those sharing of tasks. I think that's a part of survival and the survival route to parenting for all parents. But for these participants in the study that I did they almost wouldn't allow themselves those typical parenting outs you know those typical parenting supports and put so much pressure on themselves to do everything that they 
I don't even know if they always did, but felt they had to retain continuously. And then the burden that comes with that is really huge. And I think I think even for, for us to say it's OK to need help. You know, we all need help sometimes. And that doesn't mean it doesn't hurt or upset. But it's but it is OK if that's what you need. And I think that the message around that is just really helpful in terms of managing expectations and, and being a little bit kind to to, to yourself in the, the, the process, because parenting is, is like it's learning, isn't it, all the way through and, and everybody's doing their best. But it's to try and realize some things are harder, but sometimes our internal thought processes make things harder as well and if we can manage some of those internal things that that can just offload a little bit and and maybe leave a bit of space for enjoyment and quality of parenting you know and because I think that was something that some for a lot of the parents they were so hard pressed to do everything and be everything within their parenting role that then they they could kind of reflect that they weren't enjoying the engagement piece and they and they were missing that joy and fun and I think that's something that we just need to think about and, and not gloss over because it is important yeah but I think earlier you mentioned something that, that resonated to me at least which is that it's one thing if you you know like an able-bodied person decides of their own volition that they want to delegate something like they're in control of that and they know underneath that that it's their choice and if they needed to they could just do it themselves but when it's not your choice anymore it is a lot more difficult to to cope with that and there's definitely yeah this kind of um the way the grief can manifest oops hitting my own microphone the way the grief can manifest is kind of saying like i this illness has taken a lot from me i'm not going to let it take this anymore you know don't i'm not going to let it take my even like silly things like you know i've had times where i've like been bringing groceries in from outside and i'm like i know that even if i didn't have arthritis it'd be like this is too much to carry like this is literally just yeah. too much but i'm like i don't want to do my joint protection right now i'm, I'm annoyed at the fact that i have to, i know i should do this for rheumatoid arthritis and i don't want to do it because of that it's so funny how our brains are just like not logical sometimes, you know, so if you're struggling, yeah. I, I see you and you're not alone, but what, what, you know, Dr. Cod said about, you know, it is true that the, when you stop fighting that need to delegate and you embrace the need to delegate and ask for help, your life, it does open you up and it opens your, opens you up for improved quality of life. Um, yeah, for sure. I, I think it gives breathing space, doesn't it? It stops mm -hmm. the tsunami of feeling overwhelmed. And it's just trying to adjust and find a, a, a new a new level of, of normal that's enjoyable and that's at a functional level that that's acceptable for, for where you're at in your life. And that's changing all of the time as well but it's just trying to trying to give yourself a little bit of breathing space with that because otherwise it's it's such a hamster wheel trying to fight and do and fight and do and and not have time for not even have time to what was your quote i cannot pour from an empty cup you know so all of those factors and it's and it's just being sensitive to that within yourself too is really important if you have ever felt completely lost or utterly alone while trying to navigate real life with rheumatic disease, listen up, I am here for you. 
I created an educational program to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported and connected in a matter of weeks. And it's called Room to Thrive. After earning a master's in occupational therapy and completing hundreds of hours of additional training, I created a step-by-step guide to help you truly thrive with rheumatic disease. This is the only program I know of that's designed to improve quality of life for people living with inflammatory autoimmune forms of arthritis, like rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, non-radiographic axial spondyloarthritis, Sjogren's disease, and more. During the self-paced lessons, you'll learn how to manage pain and fatigue, cope with stress, navigate relationships, and continue doing the things that matter to you and bring you joy. The goal is really to help you improve your quality of life and learn how to thrive with your rheumatic disease right now, rather than waiting for a distant day when it might be cured or healed. I really created the down-to-earth, practical, heartfelt resource I wish I had had when I was first diagnosed at age 20. If you want even more in-depth support, you can join the 12-week Room to Thrive virtual support group where you'll be surrounded by people who actually get what you're going through, people who will provide the encouragement, validation, and support that you deserve. Each group is expertly moderated, so you don't have to worry about the kind of misinformation that spreads like wildfire in the free-for-all social media groups. If you're on the fence, don't just take my word for it. Here's what Katie had to say in March 2023. I was lost and overwhelmed with my RA diagnosis. It felt overwhelming to know what to read, what to do, how to spend my energy trying to research on the internet. Room to Thrive did that for me. It's been like getting a crash course in my diagnosis along with a community who gets it. To see all the details, including the dates for the next support groups, go to the link in the show notes or bit.ly slash thrive room with a capital T and capital R. You can also just email me anytime at info at myarthritislife.net. And don't delay if you're interested because each group is capped at 16 people or less in order to make a small, intimate group atmosphere. Thanks so much for your time. And I can't wait to get started with the next groups. And I can't wait for those of you who are interested in the self-paced option to go ahead and join that at any time. Bye-bye for now. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's funny. I would, I think that in my own life, there's certain things that I am really good at delegating. It's almost like I have like compartmentalized, like I am, for example, really, you know, I prioritize my sleep a lot. And so like when Charlie was younger, I had no problems at all saying, you know, my husband's, you always do the bedtime, you know, and I'm, I'm going to go to sleep even earlier. Like you do the, you know, when he was like an infant, when Charlie was an infant, it would be like, you know, well, I'll go to bed, me and Charlie go to bed at like eight. And then you do like the 11 or 12, you know, PM or AM feedings. Um, And that's, I don't mind. I want to sleep. Right. But then there's other times where it's like, my brain's like, I don't want to, I want to do this myself, you know? So yeah, it's like learning how to give yourself almost permission to ask for help, you know, permission to not do everything yourself. And I do think it's important to kind of reflect on the fact that no human society has ever been like completely based on independence. Like we are a social, you know, creature, right. And we, we rely on community and interdependence. And it's really kind of like an ableist narrative to say, like, everyone should be able to do everything on their own. That's never been true, right? Yeah, <laughs> or my, absolutely. I mean, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And and also, I think too, if you give yourself that space, then you give yourself a little bit of a space to plan 
options. So even like what you've just said, that you worked out a, a comfortable fit for you and your husband to manage this little baby who needed nighttime feeds and that worked and that felt good. Or even, um, you know, having options in your head or your, or your mind for keeping a little person or a slightly bigger person engaged when you're really fatigued and it might be having the box of lego that's easy to pull out or the interesting sticker books or to say it's okay that we sit down and watch a movie together because or a little episode or something because it gives me a break but having a plan for those things really helps you feel like you're in control rather than feeling too tired to go out and kick football and then feeling rubbish about it so it's 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 mm. just trying to think about things where you lead you're leading the choices that you have thought about your child and you as a parent and your combined interests and what activities can fit within those things for play because play is really important and that came out so much in the research that there's a lot of guilt around play if if play was more sedentary now than it was before because of of some of those aspects so planning play that's acceptable that's that's within the interests of of the children but within your capacity as a person means that it's much more enjoyable all around as well and it's just kind of yeah think solving some of those problems again and, and just thinking about in my world how I like to do things and what's going to work for me and I think that really helps yeah I love that and I yeah I definitely had personally, and just adding my personal details, just so people can relate to it. But I don't know if it's that helpful, but, um, I, you know, I had heard once this little mantra of like, my child needs me to be present, not perfect. And that's something I repeated to myself a lot because it really is true that the most important thing to, to a child is, is your presence, you know, whether it's yeah. through playing something really active with them, like, you know, kicking the football or whether it yeah. is, um, you know, something more sedentary, like reading and saying, you know, like, and no, I also, maybe this is helpful to someone, but you know, no one gets the perfect parent, you know, but this is the, this is the life that you have, you know what I mean? Yeah. And there is, I mean, I'd actually had probably what's closest to perfect, but you know, imperfection doesn't really exist in the sense and, and it's, you could, waste a lot of time, you know, going on Instagram and looking, oh, this mom is so perfect. Oh, I've even compared myself to another mom with rheumatoid arthritis, Mariah. She's been on the podcast and I'm like, oh, I've looked at her pictures. I'm like, she's so creative with her kids. And like, I was like a pediatric occupational therapist. And like, I didn't even think of that idea. Like what's wrong with me? You know, we can all do this. Right. And I, luckily I have all these coping tools because people listening might think Cheryl doesn't seem like she has those thoughts. I have the same negative thoughts that everyone else does, but I've learned how to not be um, bothered as much by the thoughts because they're just thoughts. You know, I'm like, yeah, that's, you know, yeah, I can cope and, with that. And is that through conversation with others that you've helped that? Or is that through your internal processing? Because I do think sometimes people need to talk it out to yeah. find the peace that sits with them. Or, or, or maybe mm -hmm. there, some people are just good at finding that themselves. But absolutely, I couldn't agree with you more. It's, it's about having it's having the, the emotional capacity to parent is the really is so important to be present as a parent. And if you are tired and if you have a lot of pain or if you're feeling overwhelmed with worry and guilt or stress, it's really hard to have that emotional capacity. So I think if, if you can unpack some of those elements to, as I say, have the Lego box beside the sofa, yeah. have have the kind of, you know, interactive books or the sticker books or, or the special movie that we watch together 
that there are options that are not as physically demanding that helps you be present and, and enjoy because it is about it's a quality experience and, and that's what we want to, for our parents to give our children and we want that reciprocal quality experience for ourselves as well yeah yeah you're like giving yourself permission to not be perfect in the moment is such a unburdening you know experience yeah I do think that getting yeah getting support from other parents is is huge because you know everyone goes through the same feelings of imposter syndrome or feeling like all the other moms know something I don't know (laughs) they all got the manual I didn't get the manual you know so um yeah yeah actually you know I I, I'm I'm acknowledging that I keep using moms because I am a mom, but you did study both genders, which I think first, or sorry, I don't, I don't want to even be binary, but you studied, you know, not just people who identify as female. And um, I think that's really incredible that you made sure to do that in your research. So can you tell me more about the gender differences? Yeah, it was really interesting, the gender differences and why I was interested in this is there has been a little bit of work done about this before. So there's some Scandinavian researchers who have done some work in this area and they would have reported that there are no differences in how men or women parent. And there is a UK researcher who has done, Caroline Flurry has done a lot of work with men and arthritis and she would have said, actually, there are differences. So I was really interested in the Irish context and, and with early inflammatory arthritis, are there any differences? And there were, and, and there were for a couple of reasons. Um, women in the study were more inclined to consider themselves as a parent in the here and now. So in the things they couldn't, couldn't do in terms of care, nurture, play, transport, all those kind of roles and how it made them feel in the here and now. Whereas the men in the study were much more future focused and they took a much more pragmatic approach to it and they were really all the time thinking as a parent in the future. And the other thing that was really interesting from the male point of view or that male perspective that was very different from the female was that a massive part of of the sense of being a parent for the men in, in the study was that provider part of parenting and providing financial stability to their children and to their family. So the men in the study really talked about how this diagnosis impacted on their masculine identity to deliver on that provider role and whether that was something that they could sustain into the future. And that was their focus mainly, and that was the source of their worry. And I think that's really important. Again, I'm bringing it back to what what interventions we should be thinking about. But but if you think about the supports for parenting, We do need to be conscious that not just early and established arthritis might need different types of supports, but men and women might need different supports because a lot of for a lot of the men, it was around help me stay in work, help me have that career trajectory to deliver on that parenting role, which is different than women who were looking for support in. How do I make the dinner? How do I manage bedtimes? How do I get them in and out of the car? How can I be a good mom and and manage the guilt? And and I think that's really important to be sensitive to because the pitch of asking how how are things going from a parenting point of view, it's different for men and women, or at least that's what this um, our findings suggested. So thinking about that when we're design asking about, about parenting and also when we're looking at what type of interventions and supports might be helpful for the men and women who are parents. Yeah, that, that is really, I mean, it's really interesting. And I meant to ask earlier, you interviewed 24 people 
and I think, did you say all 24 were in the early arthritis? Like they had been diagnosed within two years of becoming a parent. Is mm -hmm. that right? So yes. who, so you, but you also, did you also interview people who had established arthritis or are you comparing these people with early arthritis to other studies? I was just trying to figure that out. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah, no. Yeah. So I, my study was only early inflammatory okay. arthritis in the first two years of their diagnosis, but I was comparing to what's out there in the literature for established disease and what the findings were there. So they're the differences that I'm, I'm kind of highlighting where my research mapped onto what's yeah. out there and what some of the differences were. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. No, that, that, that's interesting because I, I think some of the things I, I would imagine some of them were similar because even if it's like, I might be used to asking for help, but I don't necessarily like it, you know, any, <laughs> that kind of thing. But, but anyway, yeah, in terms of, sorry, I just blipped back to that topic, but in terms of the gender differences, it does make sense with just kind of how we're socialized, you know, to focus on um, I think men are often socialized to really focus on that provider role. So um, helping support them in that makes makes a lot of sense. And I think it's just, I'm grateful that you even addressed it because I know that a lot of um, men have told me that in, in the chronic illness community feel like they're kind of, they're even more invisible, right? Because they're not represented in a lot of like the, you know, um, social media uh -huh images right or you know uh, the wow. websites everything's kind of all a lot there's just a lot more and there's a lot more it, it's sick it's a vicious cycle right because also maybe men are not taught or encouraged to share their stories and share their emotions and so um yeah but I'm, I'm glad that you but you addressed that in your research <laughs> were, were the emotional I am curious if the emotional uh, aspects were similar and was that, were there any themes in that or no? Um, no, they were similar. They were similar, really. Again, it was that guilt um, and, and just so much guilt around being a good parent and the guilt to try and shield um, children from and shielding and protecting. That was a really strong theme, protecting children so that they wouldn't be aware of the, the person's pain or the, where the person was at in their diagnosis and a worry that went with that. And I suppose all of that having a big consequence on that emotional capacity all of the way along. But, but no, I think it was more that men really were thinking, well, this is it and this is how it feels, but what's it going to mean in the future and how can I deliver? Whereas women were, were more inclined to talk about the here and now and those really practical pieces. And But why I thought it was so interesting was that many of the women in the study also worked <laughs> and also worked practically full time, but their focus was different, you know, and, and I think that that's something, again, it's just assumptions. It's just, I suppose it's that reset to say, don't ever assume but ask the question and, and listen carefully to the answer to, to hear because that's going to really help inform what might help this person at this time. And I think it's interesting too that you brought up about men not being represented uh, in Ireland an awful lot of the, um, you know, the literature and pamphlets and stuff that is available. Um, can feature older people sometimes who have inflammatory arthritis, which is why I was so thrilled to see your TikToks and your Instagram and, and to bring that youth and, and energy in a different way of sharing information, because I just think that's so important. How people receive information has such a big impact as to 
whether it resonates with them, if it feels like them, and therefore if they're going to hear it and, and do something with it. So for you, I have to say thank you because it, because uh -huh. I think that those TikToks and and the fun and and yet the really practical things, it just it's meaningful, and I think that 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 really helps open up the conversation too. And when you're showing how to, you know pluck your eyebrows with a different type of, of a tweezers then it's easier to open up the conversation about grooming and you know it's all those different things so I, I yeah I think that's important too I think we do need to be kind of creative in how we deliver interventions so that they're acceptable to to the people we're trying to target so that there's a greater chance of them being successful yeah and that, that brings back up the you know I think there's a similar barrier to the, the barrier psychologically to delegating and asking for help is similar to the barrier uh, to of the barrier for using adaptive equipment and assistive devices. And that's this idea that um, this makes me, I want to do it myself. I want to do it the normal way, quote unquote, normal, which I don't like that word, <laughs> but um, mm -hmm. you know, I don't, I I'm weaker or I'm less than if I have to use this. And so, you know, I, I don't, I haven't actually read a ton on like Brene Brown's work on shame and vulnerability, but I've heard her on a, like it being interviewed on a lot of podcasts. And I think it's, you know, um, I, I credit my parents for, for, for raising me to really not have a lot of shame. I, I'm laughing as I'm saying this, because I know what they would say is that you are always like that. <laughs> say, we just kind of, we just didn't get in your way. That's what they say all the time. But, um, but they did, they did have that unconditional positive regard and saying, you know, like, you're not, you do things the way that works for you. You know, you don't have to conform, you know, to what everyone else is doing. And so um, you may use the example of using like a, a different style, uh, an adaptive or assistive style of a tweezer for your eyebrow, you know, eyebrows. To me, it's like, I already don't really feel a lot of shame about that. But when, once mm. I started sharing that publicly, I realized how many people said, I mean, I'm just reiterating what you said, but that it means something to them to see someone use it without shame, you know, and yeah. they feel less shame now. And so when they, when they do it, and I, I need those kind of messages for other things. Like I needed it for like, so I was never, I've never been too ashamed to like wear a, a compression glove or brace or something external. But what I, where I felt ashamed was opening up about my struggles with anxiety and mental health. I mm -hmm. felt like a huge barrier for that. I didn't want to admit it. I thought it meant that I was weak and it was complicated because I had been kind of medically gaslit way long ago before my diagnosis to say, you're, you're just anxious. You're not sick. So I was like, I didn't want to admit that I even did struggle with anxiety because I met, it kind of met, yeah. felt like it was saying that they were right. Um, but once I, once I saw other people opening up about anxiety, I was like, okay, yeah. And in doing it in an ownership way and without shame, I was like, okay, I can do that too. You know, so yeah. representation is important. I, I, absolutely. And there's a couple of things that, uh, on, on what you've said, because I think, I think um, even before adaptive aids, I think empowering that discussion around tools for jobs and looking at design of products that are out there be that the car seat the high chair the oh hold you on the, oh, your audio look. cut out oh sorry oh your, your audio cut out but now you're back oh, no. sorry no no it's okay I think <laughs> it was right when you said tools for jobs oh it's mine it says your oh. connect internet is unstable <gasps> I wonder if it's because of the construction they're doing I'm sorry okay so just okay. just start that sentence again if you don't mind <laughs> 
Okay. Um, so, so I suppose there's a couple of things really in, in what you've just touched on that I think is really important just for people to empower them really to have that conversation. Because if you think about the equipment that you use in your everyday life, the tools for your job. So for parenting, I'm talking about from the cot to the high chair, to the car seat, you know, to the hairbrush, <laughs> to all those different components of the tools that you need. And look at this, look at the features and the design of them. I'm sure you've pushed a buggy that was way too heavy and thought, what am I thinking? Or try to fold one up and put it in the boot of the car or, you know, or the too many pieces the tray on the on the top of the high chair so I, I really think having those early conversations around what do you need and how does it work and try it out and how easy are these on your joints is really really important like people buy things because they look great <laughs> and they, they can look great and be really functional too so I think those kind of design decisions and, and ergonomic decisions can make a task a nightmare or a, jo or a joy and I think that's really important conversation to have but I also think the other piece that you've said around asking how are you doing it's it's okay you know it's normal to 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 feel anxious at times how are you managing and asking kind of elements of of the role how is the child how is this going how is that going gives a person space to unpack how they're feeling and it means they're more likely to realize this is coming up in conversation. Therefore, this is normal. This is this is this is part of the condition, and this is an appropriate place to ask for help and to seek support. And when I'm saying ask for help and seek support, I suppose in Ireland, I'm 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 saying that from the point of view of the rheumatology services that are there. I'm also talking from the perspectives of some of the charity groups that are available who do an awful lot of online supports and resources, and and I suppose the kind of work that you're doing where you're empowering people to to learn more about self-managing but it's the conversation this is this is okay this is the same for many of us and this ebbs and flows at different times as well and and I think that just like normalizing the sounds wrong but yet I think it's really right and saying it's okay to to ask this question and it's okay to feel like that and this is a space that we can unpack it and and try and look at ways to help you manage I just think is really powerful I 100% agree. Yeah, if no one asks you about something, then the implicit assumption is that it doesn't matter. You know, it's like the same yeah. with work. If your provider doesn't ask you about work, then I guess it's not important, you know, and, and that's unfortunate, right? <laughs> Absolutely. And I also think that the relationship that you have with the people who are having this conversation with is really important. And that was something that came up in other research that I did looking at, at a type of service design for rheumatology and there was kind of two two sides I asked the staff and I asked the clients who attended the service about all these role type engagement pieces and one of the things that came up an awful lot from the staff point of view was saying well, we ask about these explicitly how are you managing the work home parenting leisure how are you managing emotionally because this is the place that we can help you and then the other side of that that I thought was really interesting was the service users were saying you know it depends on the person it depends on the relationship that you bring and one, I remember one person saying you're not going to go in huffing and puffing to a stranger but over time as you get to know each other and the trust is there and and you feel it's genuine then you will share and and I think that's really really important that wherever that support is that it, it feels like a, a hammock to give you to give you a lift because then you will use that space um, to to discuss and, and to get the help that you need as well. 
I love that. Yeah. It's so true. You can't just immediately. Well, I guess I'm a little weird because I kind of sometimes do that, but normal, normally <laughs> people don't just feel like I'm going to tell you my whole life story and everything that's going on in my mind and my emotions right now. You need t- time to develop that rapport. So I love yeah. that. And the other thing I wanted to ask you about is something when we were emailing back and forth about this episode, just getting some ideas together, you had this beautiful thought that I'm just going to read. I'm going to read from your email <laughs> to me. I think pivoting the conversation about the effects of arthritis on roles and engaging in roles rather than purely symptoms like pain and fatigue is really important. So I agree. <laughs> and can you tell me a little bit more about like how occupational therapists do that? Like, how do we move? How have you moved beyond just being like, our whole goal is just symptom management? And again, I think it's coming back to that asking those explicit life questions. Because if if I said, or, you know, if if I said to somebody who's coming in for an appointment with an inflammatory arthritis and said, how are you? How are things? They're more likely to say to me, I have pain in my wrists um my, my knuckles have been really swollen and they default to symptoms because I think I suppose that can often be the, the medical context so when you default to symptoms or the expectation is symptoms is what's it, what what you should be discussing here that is what is discussed OTs bring it back to what's happening in your life what you need to do right now how are you managing at home, how are you managing getting washed? How are you managing with doing meal preparation? How are you finding driving at the moment? Do any of these things make your symptoms worse? How are your energy levels over a day in a week? And and asking those explicit kind of questions around not just the tasks, but the routines that go with it as well helps bring it further from those kind of physical issues and, and into those activities or those symptoms in function and it helps keep the focus on the doing and the function just to be sure we're not missing things because I know I know certainly sometimes in in therapy we're busy and we we kind of would love to go and read all of this (laughs) because all of the information is in there but actually we know from looking at the research nobody reads it because it's too much and it, it is just text and it doesn't mean anything but the other thing, so it needs a conversation or it needs a visual or it needs um, a, a group discussion or a video or a TikTok. But the other thing we need to know is that maybe because somebody has managed really well to manage one aspect of their condition and they have found really good ways of joint protection and pacing and ergonomics and, and managing their fatigue, it doesn't necessarily translate into another role that they do. So if you're managing home really well, you can't assume, I can't assume that you will translate those skills directly into work or parenting and that you might need a conversation to make the connections. And I think that that's really important. OTs think about that a lot and, and they know that it needs to be very specific. What is the, what's the issue in a function and address it that way. That I really resonate with that. And I've talked to so many people who are almost like they over-function at work because they're so afraid of if, if they haven't disclosed their condition or even if they have, they're afraid of being, you know, um, ridiculed or for poor performance. And so they over-function in some areas. And that I would say I fell, fell in that court category. I felt like when, you know, when Charlie was 11 or 12 months old, I remember telling my husband, I feel like work is like the only thing I'm good at right now. Like it's the only thing I know 
how to do really well, including being a wife and being a mom and everything. And so I really leaned into it. I kind of felt, well, it was even more complicated because we got, we waited to try to get pregnant till after I passed my board exam. So I had, I was a totally brand new graduate for OT and we surprisingly to ourselves, we got pregnant right away. Cause I was thinking, oh, I have all these health issues. You no, know, that's probably going to take a while. Nope. Got pregnant on the first try. So I got my first job as you know, when like four months pregnant. Um, and, um, and so luckily I, my, um, employer, Jessica, I met Jessica McMurdy. She's awesome. And she, it was Pete's clinic and she's, you know, she knew I just closed. I was pregnant. She knew she, and it was great. And I, I mean, I learned so much and I just really leaned in to wanting to be the best mm-hmm. pediatric OT. And I felt like I was successful, you know? And so, um, so I was like, I don't want to lose any time. You know what I mean? On in my career, cause I worked so hard to become an OT, but I really, I, and it was, a bunch of things on top of each other. Like if my disease had gotten more under control with my postpartum flare up, it would have enabled my function. Right. Like, mm-hmm. um, but it, you know, I wouldn't have needed to accommodate as much, but then I did have, uh, I had some rude awakenings. So I was like, I can't, I, I, something has to give, you know, I have to reduce yeah. my hours or, you know, I have to give my body some time to reach a new equilibrium and, um, and, and work on my mental health and, you know, I didn't, I started therapy when Charlie was a year old and I've said this, I've told a story before, but I'll just really quickly summarize that I, um, maybe he was 13 months old. It was like, I kept waiting until he got to be a year. And I had this idea in my head that like, when your child turns a year, like, okay, once he's a year old, it's like, I'll have figured it out. Like that's the finish line. And then I was very disappointed when like nothing magically changed the day he turned 12 months old. And so my therapist was like, I can't, like, I can't tell you how relieved I felt when she said, I can't tell you how many people say that. Like they come in. Cause I thought, am I even like able to come in here for like postpartum anxiety and maybe depression? I don't know. Postpartum mood. I call it postpartum mood funkiness. So like postpartum, I'm not myself, <laughs> you know? And she's like, oh yeah, it's postpartum. Like you had a baby. Like it's, it's fine. You know, you don't have, it's not like it only lasts three months or, you know, so, um, so oh, I figured what my original point with that was, but just, um, yeah, learning, learn. Yeah. I was, okay. Yeah. That you can't transfer one skill to another context. Everything is context dependent. So I was very functional at work and not as functional in the home environment. And, and, um, so I needed a lot of help, even though, um, it, if you took a snapshot of my day from work, you wouldn't have thought that. And I think something that you've touched on is something that OTs are very good at seeing in other people, but we don't see in ourselves because that's human life. <laughs> but but that all outside of the role piece. So those broader um, aspects that have such a big impact on how we're functioning. So you've talked about the need for sleep. So important to ha- what capacity you have to, to be and to do, how you're managing your own conscious self-care and looking after those things that you have a little bit of space for joy as I like to say and if that joy is a cup of tea and a book for five minutes or to go and do something with with your family or not (laughs) depending on but all of those kind of routines and patterns wider than work that you're eating well that you're sleeping well that you have those they have such an impact on your capacity. And I think sometimes we're so focused, like you've said, on the doing and doing really well and pressure to do really well that we don't realize that we need to kind of mind mind wider and, and consider wider. And sometimes those kind of self-management interventions that we would be offering as OTs would be around that 
wider self-management approach to be thinking about the wider context because all of that decides or not decides, but really impacts on resilience over time and capacity over time, particularly when you're looking to build capacity up. So it's it's kind of that thing of we want to just have the, the tunnel vision, but that's not sustainable over time. And we need to, to kind of think broadly. So the, there is, again, that less frustration and more joy, enjoyment and pleasure. I, I think that's so important. I, I love that. I love that. And prioritizing your own you know, prioritizing your own yeah. satisfaction in life too. Yeah, it's okay to say, you know, I just need five minutes or I'm going yeah. for a little stroll or I'm going for a bath or I'm going, it, it, it's, and it's not even the task sometimes, sometimes it's the task and sometimes it's the breather because I think mm -hmm. parents, it's that always on wanting to do well. And, and, you know, you've said it already, but it's that pressure you put on yourself, the expectation you put on yourself is a really big thing that I think all parents need to do a little reality check on, but certainly from the research that, that I have done that parents with early arthritis put so much expectation on themselves to be everything and do everything. And it's okay to need help. And I also think expectations yeah. from others. I don't know if that was an experience for you, but sometimes people can say, well, you look great, or, or you, she never says that she's in pain. And, and that that mirror out may not be the mirror in and that's trying to manage that a little bit too I don't know is that something you found yeah or I well I, I it's complicated but I remember people saying you're doing so well like they're trying to be encouraging and I wanted to be like no I'm not <laughs> you know what I mean but I'm like wait do I burst their bubble because I'm kind of like a people pleaser like do I have the emotional capacity right now to like explain to them that I'm actually not you know but um so that's really more my issue but yeah I, that I in general I, the themes that I've seen with running my you know room to thrive support group and programs is that a lot of people it's it's really you feel like you're being erased your experience is erased because people say things like you know you don't look sick or you you look fine or I've even had like providers like not rheumatologists but other providers be like kind of take a look at my joints and like oh wow you're like doing so well because you don't have like severe deformities after 19 years. And I'm like, well, that's, that's like very, that's like, it is one visible part. And I am very grateful that I don't have the severe deformities just because they would make life harder for me. But it doesn't mean that like I've had a cakewalk over the last 19 years, yeah. you know, especially like managing exactly. multiple immunosuppressants during a worldwide pandemic and, you know, managing yeah. and that, that actually has been a lot, you know, harder for me recently is, you know, it's, like when your child is older, you know, Charlie's eight now, then your condition affects them in kind of a different way in the sense of like, okay, well, the world's like partly opening up now. And, but if I still want us to have some of these, you know, um, precautions like wearing masks and avoiding large indoor gatherings is it, it becomes really challenging to know that like, Oh, that, that in reality, in practice, that looks like deciding, is it worth it to us to allow Charlie to go to a friend's birthday party? That's like an indoor, you know, um, arcade and I have area or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I happened, I love arcades. Like I love, you know, so we're having to make these difficult decisions and it's really hard to be like, my child might have to, you know, miss out. I, I don't, I'm, I've come to the point where I accept that I'm going to miss out on things, but it's harder for me to accept that, 
you know, my child might miss out or even just our choice to keep him in virtual school. Um, when his school first opened up prior to vaccination, they opened up to in-person and we were not comfortable with that, but then it's like seeing his little friends all get to see each other. And I'm like, Oh, know. you know, so, um, yeah. the challenges change. I, I just want to acknowledge that they change over time. You know, that the things that are difficult, you have to take care of your child's basic needs when they're little, you have to do their diapers and do all that. But then when they're older, it becomes more about, um, there's more emotional, complex, emotional things, I think. And, and I think that's so true. And I think, I think, you know, you're a parent for life, no matter how old your child is. Um, I'm still very much my, my parents' daughter, you know, and, and you will look to them, for, or I look to them for, for reassurance or guidance at times. So the emotional needs are more for me now than as a baby. And that whole lifespan of being a parent brings different challenges at different times. And sometimes they are more physically demanding elements. Sometimes they are an awful lot more of those invisible, emotional worrying. And I think it's it's saying this is this is there are different times in your life that different types of parenting support might be helpful to you. And it's not like you've said, he's one, it's fine. I know what I'm doing. And it's, there are different times with different elements to navigate that I think it is really important to say, there's no way to have it sussed. In my study, I, I picked parents who were adults who were parents to children who were 21 or younger, but um, because I wanted to kind of see those years where I suppose you really are you know your your child is reliant on you for a, a, a very long time or for all of those elements of parenting but as somebody who's a lot older than 21 I'm still very reliant on my parents and I think that that's important just to be aware of as well that parenting never stops so the time for support or the type of support might change over time and that's a conversation that's really important to have and and to look and see what's available there yeah and I'm, I'm sorry if I, I think I might have I might have said it wrong earlier because I thought that the people in your study were they had gotten diagnosed within two years of giving birth, but no, they're within two years, they're a parent who got diagnosed within two years of the study. So they're an adult um, who had an, a diagnosis of inflammatory arthritis of two years duration or less who were parents. Okay. And they, they, they were parents of children from 21 years or less, and they all were parents before they had arthritis. So, so I was kind of looking at some of those layers. Um, okay. That. Yeah, that then you, because I didn't realize the children were older. I'm sorry. I obviously didn't read the full study. <laughs> <laughs> this is why you don't just look at the abstract people, read the whole thing. But, um, but um, because I think that's even more complicated because mm -hmm. then you actually have a pattern that you establish like this is my parenting routine and then that's snatched mm -hmm. away from you when you suddenly can't do exactly. those things versus I had expectations like when I was saying expectations minus reality it's one thing to be like pregnant and be like my life might be this way and then it's different when the child comes but when you're like no I already had this like I had this down exactly. I had a routine and then you're like <laughs> nope that routine's not, not available to you anymore that's really hard. And I think that's why taking help was so forced yeah. and, and that forced role switch because it was so unbidden to have to delegate things that you that, that were always done before. And that's why it was so fiercely fought against and caused such upset. And I think that that's something we, we do need to think about. And that's why I was saying just because somebody has help, don't think fantastic, they have support, how fantastic, because 
yes, we worry about the, the, the clients that we meet who, who we feel have no support and we want to do our best for them. But sometimes people have support. They, it's, they don't want it. They want to do it themselves. And that's what your priority is to, to try and help solve the problems that might go with the environment or the symptoms or or the routines that are, are hamstringing that person to do things as they want to because it has to be person-led at the end of the day it's so important yeah no absolutely absolutely um and i i sadly i do need to wrap up a little bit but um one of my favorite pieces of or pieces one of my favorite questions to ask my interviewees is about um, newly diagnosed. Cause I mean, of course you already did your, did your research on people who were in their first two years of diagnosis, which for a chronic lifelong condition is, you know, newly, I would consider newly diagnosed. Um, so what do you have any general words of wisdom for people who might have just kind of gotten, um, what one of my students called like a bomb thrown in their life of this diagnosis? <laughs> I suppose what I I suppose what I would really encourage anybody who's just getting this news or in those early years of getting the news is find out what's out there, find out what's available from a hospital provider point of view, find out what's available within the charity groups that are in your area or nationally, find out what's there from a community signposting, community support groups that are there, because and online as well, of course, well, through through trusted sources, because you may not want that help right now. But if you know that it's there, you can go back when you want. And there's there's I often think there's a little seed that gets planted when you know what's available, that it might not be the right time. You might need that flexible approach, but you kind of have a sense of where to go back to if you need to. And then the other thing I have kind of touched on before, but I really think it's so important is plan your your um, appointment with your doctor. Take time the couple of days before to think about how am I now? What has changed? What are my worries? And write them down and, and think wider than symptoms. Think about how you're managing your everyday things and what, what your worries are. Because if you go in with the list, they'll see it. And even if they... Do, don't see it slash pretend they don't see it holding it in your hand going I have a couple of things I want to go through gives breathing space to ask some of the things so again it's just trying to find ways that lets um, that person feel that they're leading and, and leading the conversation so that any interventions that come are most likely to be meaningful for them and it is really hard and the, and services certainly in Ireland are very fragmented and there is a lot of ge geographical inequity there which is why online resources and uh, through the likes of yourself are so helpful because it does take down the barriers around that and I don't know about you, but over COVID, certainly um, a lot of our clients, when we're doing telephone calls, it's not the same. A telephone medical review, it, that space to see a person, or particularly if you weren't expecting the telephone call, you know, you need you need your, your appointments to be planned. You need them to, to, to have that space so that you can get the most from that time as well. I love that. And I think that your note about preparing specific examples from your life of what you can and can't do is really key. Because what I'll tell people is, you know, pain is extremely subjective. So yeah, they're going to have you rate your pain on a scale of one to 10, yeah. which 
to me is pretty much meaningless most of the time. I mean, it's, it's important on either end of the pole, right? If you're at zero, it's significant. If you're at 10, it's significant. But in between there, it's like, you know, what color is love? Like, it's like just an impossible yeah. question for me to answer. Like, I always tell my doctor, I, if you, if you do the subtypes of pain, I can answer it on one to 10, like stiffness, dull ache, hot, you know, inflamed tenderness, you know, um, stabbing pain, uh, you know, there's different kinds of pain I can rate on one to 10, but a general like aggregate, just, I don't know how to do that. I've had this for 19 years yeah. and I have a master's degree and I don't know how to do, I don't know because I might be a zero on stabbing, but like an eight on stiffness. Like, am I supposed to just average that? Like a four means nothing, you know? So the point being, so, but when you, but so that's subjective, but objective, if you say, I can't, I can't put my child's diaper on because I, my, it hurts my hands too much. I can't lift a cup of coffee. I can't lift my mug of coffee. I can't like the things that you can and yeah. can't do that's objective, you know? So when I finish preparing a meal, my pain is way worse and it, I'm, I'm wiped mm. for the rest of the evening. You know, when I go to lift my child into the car, my, my wrist is throbbing and, and I need to use ice or I need to take payment. So I think take, bringing it back to function is really tangible. And I think the other thing is it also helps you notice change over time because pain, pain is pain, of course, but pain when and pain doing what that gives the context that's really really important and and I think that that's uh, bringing it back to function means that I think you're, it increases the chance of getting value out of your your interactions because those function needs can be addressed absolutely yeah and um is there anything else you wanted to just share with the audience that we didn't get a chance to touch up on before we wrap up <laughs> I'm sure I'll think of a hundred things, oh, but no, immediately after <laughs> no, we're done, you will. I always do too. Oh, I should have said this. I should have said that. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think it's been really nice to have a conversation around parenting because it is an area that doesn't get the attention. And I know that you've done a talk for, for us in, in back in March about your experience of parenting and all these practical things and problem solving things that, that you are so good at and, and with your OT hatter before, but I think it is really important for any parent who has arthritis to just to have that thinking bit because some things are might be fine but that doesn't mean that the one thing that drives you mad is not important to try and look at managing in another way and whatever that other way might be so no thank you Cheryl it's been mm -hmm. lovely <laughs> well yeah thank no thank you so much I know that you are very very busy with your research and teaching and being an OT and being a mom, all your different roles. But um, if people want to find you or connect to you online, where can they do that? So I'm on Twitter at Yvonne Codd, and you can also, um, that's really where I am, or the School of OT in Trinity is at TCD underscore OT, which is where I work. Okay. Okay. Great. Um, I, I'm putting that in the show notes as we speak. I'm literally typing it in. So yeah, the, these, these will be linked in the show notes on on my website. So on the, our, myarthritislife.net is my website. So thank you so, so much again. I know that there's people listening who feel like they've been seen, that they're not alone and that maybe they will consider getting some of the supports that, that we mentioned. Um, so thank you again. Thanks so much. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to another episode of the Arthritis Life Podcast. 
This episode is brought to you by Room to Thrive, an educational program I created from scratch to help you go from overwhelmed to confident, supported, and connected in a matter of weeks. You can go through the pre-recorded course on your own, or you can take the course along with a support group. Learn more at the link in my show notes, or you can always go to www.myarthritislife.net. And if you like this podcast, I would be so honored if you took the time to rate and review it. I also encourage you to share it with anyone you know who might benefit from it. I also wanted to remind you that you can find full transcripts, videos, and detailed show notes with hyperlinks for each episode on my website, www.myarthritislife.net. If you have any ideas for future episodes, or if you want to share your story or wisdom on the podcast, just shoot me an email at info at myarthritislife.net. I can't wait to hear from you.